This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design works on an enormous and diverse range of interesting problems. So I asked UX Research Manager Reggie Murphy what's his biggest challenge with designing for Facebook, and here's what he said. Is knowing that you are designing at scale and the awesome responsibility that brings with it to, to try to understand the people that you're designing for and understanding what they need. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, MailChimp is looking for the following engineering positions. Software engineer, senior software engineer, iOS engineer, Android engineer, data engineer, data software engineer, director of product engineering, director of mobile engineering, and they're looking for a product designer. RevUnit is looking for a senior UX and UI designer. Dev Bootcamp is looking for a senior software developer instructor as well as a lead engineer. HyperAct is looking for a brand strategist. And Bandcamp is looking for a designer. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts, and when there are new positions that are added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. And if you're looking for even more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Join more than 15 million people who use MailChimp to not only send emails, but to grow their businesses on their own terms. Start sending professional-looking newsletters to your clients today for free. By the way, have you seen their new marketing campaign with the different name for MailChimp like uh, Whale Synth, Veil Him, Snail Primp? Uh, actually, the snail print one isn't too far-fetched. There's, uh, I don't know if you know this, but there's sheet masks that you can buy that have quote-unquote snail essence in them. I guess it's some kind of like snail slime for your face. I don't know. Anyway, we'll put a link to all that in the show notes so you can check out their entire campaign. And if you want to sign up for MailChimp, head on over to MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. When you have a great idea for a project, you need to give it a great domain name. And guess what? Finding the perfect domain name is ridiculously easy with Hover. Most people don't realize that when you register a domain with uh, your contact information, it's published in this Whois database, which is free for spammers and hackers and anybody else who wants to get your information to send you messages to your email, to your home, you know, and unlike some other companies, Hover includes free Whois privacy with all supported domains to keep your information confidential. 
Go to Hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's Hover.com forward slash revision path. Hover, domain names for your ideas. SiteGround's hosting services are crafted for professional, business, or enterprise projects. So whether you're building something custom or you're using a CMS like WordPress, which is what we use, uh, SiteGround lets you build better, faster, safer websites more easily, and they offer multiple hosting options that your websites can grow into. And we've got a fantastic deal for you. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path and you can get 60% off on all hosting plans. Again, 60% SiteGround.com forward slash revision path. We have a new iTunes review. This is from JAA0829. And the review is titled, Love This Show. Here it goes. I'm a recent computer science graduate that has been struggling to get my foot in the industry for the last year. This show gives insight on so many different career paths in the design field. I enjoy hearing these different designers' true experience of how it is working in the industry. It keeps me optimistic through my job search process. Well, thank you so much for that review, JAA0829, and good luck on the job search. I know it's it's rough out there. So if you haven't already, you know, check out our job board, see if there's something there that might be for you. Now let's go ahead and get on to this week's interview. I'm back at Google and I'm talking with senior interaction designer Chikizi Ijiasi. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Mm. My name is Chikizi Ijiasi. I'm a senior interaction designer at Google. So talk to the audience about what exactly interaction design is. I know there's a lot of mm. different types of design and there's titles that change as the industry changes. But to you, what is interaction design? Yeah, it's actually interesting because that question could also be answered based off of where you work. <laughs> so I know a lot of people that are actually, they, they're self-declared product designers, and then there's the visual designers, and then there's motion designers. I see personally, there's probably a different definition, but I see interaction designer as bridging a lot of those different pillars. I see interactions as the actual thing that people do, the, the experience of when they first open up your either your app or a device or even a game. It's the first moment up until the last time that they use it. I see that as a, an experience. So, yeah, you also have the title of user experience designer, but that to me is a mouthful. So I just say interaction designer. Okay. <laughs> No, and I see what you mean. Like sometimes you'll work different places. They have right. different names. I know like Automatic, for example, all their their names are wildly different. Right. I mean, there you have like Happiness Engineer. <laughs> I, think, I think one guy is called like Chief Barbecue Taster. But he's really like the CTO or something like that. Okay, I'm making yeah. an official name change. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so – You've been at, at Google for a while, and you've worked on some pretty big projects. You've mm -hmm. worked on the Nest thermostat. Uh, the on... Protect, yeah. Oh, Nest Protect. Okay. Right. You worked on Google+. Plus, mm -hmm. And now you're working with Daydream and VR. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For those that aren't familiar, what is the Daydream, I guess, platform? Daydream platform is Google's VR platform. It's their headset. It's a smartphone VR system where you have your Google Pixel. And then you can place that inside of a, a mobile VR headset. Usually VR headsets require a cable connected directly to your PC. So similar to the Samsung Gear VR, this is a device that lets you uh, experience VR on the go, like in a bus or plane or something. 
So is this kind of like a step up from Google Cardboard? Yeah, yeah. Cardboard was commonly referred to as like a snackable uh, VR. It's like you you have to hold the headset on your face while you're using it. Um, it's very much like it's accessible VR, which I like to call it. But the um, Daydream is definitely more high fidelity. Get a lot more detail. There's a strap that you can hold on your head. It comes with a remote and it's way more immersive. And what kinds of experiences are you creating on Daydream? Personally, I mean, I just started on the team, so I haven't yet uh, fully contributed to any new experiences, but the team at Google is mostly focused on creating unique VR experiences in the same experiences that you get on your phone. Like we have a Street View uh, app, which is pretty awesome. We have the Google Play app or the YouTube app. Those are all like really good experiences on uh, Daydream. Why do you think VR is so popular right now like mm. i remember in the 90s when i, I don't want to say that this is when vr kind of first came out <laughs> but i remember about vr in the 90s and it was kind of it was kind of cheesy it was like virtual boy and, and vr troopers <laughs> and stuff and now it's like this big thing that you'll see at ces and mm. there are these you know multi hundred dollar platforms around vr why is it becoming so popular right now I think there's a couple of different answers there. From the experience perspective, it really is a whole new frontier of a new way to experience games and even utility apps, for example. It's kind of like the amplification of taking a thing they used to do to the next level by fully immersing you in a completely different world. You know, VR is a pretty fascinating construct. You know, For a while, it's been the headset. And when we talk about VR, a lot of the times we also talk about augmented reality because there's a certain field of view that you're looking at. Like I, whenever we look through our eyes, we see like a certain field of view. And with virtual reality, you know, we can't just put a giant 120 inch size like TV of UI in front of your face because that would be incredibly overwhelming. It's a really interesting way of thinking about how to create experiences that not only take you to a different place, but also aren't completely overwhelming. And I think with that comes new design challenges. And I think there's kind of a excitement factor to that where a lot of designers don't yet know how to design for VR, simply because there's no limitation. There's no edge of the phone to put a box around. There's no, you have to rely on the controller to uh, move stuff around. You can't just uh, rely on uh, 2D graphics anymore. It's really about space design. Interior design becomes a much more valuable practice to understand. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So knowing about, you know, placement and proximity and scale and all right. of that becomes more important. Definitely. Definitely. When laying things out on a phone, it's really about navigating from one screen to another or transitioning from one state to another. Uh, in VR, you have not only that, but you also have the spatial relationship between things and you know, mimicking going from one screen to the next screen to the next screen to the next screen. In VR, it doesn't really feel all that special because you feel like you just took a 2D experience and you made it 3D. <laughs> and it's not the most exciting thing, but uh, if you can really find unique ways to navigate somebody through uh, an experience, that's kind of uncharted territory still. Well, I feel like also kind of adding that realism factor, you would include your other senses. Like you're saying, VR is kind of growing out of mm -hmm. the headset, which is what we see, but I would imagine you add in the other senses, you know, auditory mm -hmm. feedback, touch okay. feedback. It ends up becoming more more real i guess mm -hmm. exactly yeah there's a uh, virtual reality right now yeah it, there is kind of a, a focus on eyesight but yeah i'm i'm also curious 
what's going to happen when we start talking about um, uh, integrating audio. Because uh, even when I was talking about uh, AR, for example, AR is mostly visual. You know, we take something, we take a live feed and then we project something on it. Not many people realize that augmented reality has been around for a very long time in very subtle ways, like the first downline in football. You know, that's <laughs> that's augmented yeah. reality. Uh-huh. And then you have the backup camera on a car. It's not the Toyota Corolla with AR. It's just the Toyota Corolla with the backup camera. And it just happens to project lines to make it easy for you to back out of your driveway. So it's really interesting how AR is, is somewhat more invisible to than VR. And I think that's because it, AR is right now a technology that's being added to make the experience better. Whereas VR, you have to consciously put on a headset to enter that space. So it's interesting how the two technologies are different, but in a lot of ways they're similar where they're manipulating or improving the real world to offer you something different. So what kind of tools are you using when you're designing this platform? Because I'm I'm thinking if there are designers out there that are interested and want to get into VR, I mean, is that something that... Photoshop does can sketch do that like what what kind of tools do you use yeah so that's a definitely a, um one of the biggest questions that comes up whenever I talk to other designers that are interested in getting in VR is uh, what what are the differences in the process where you know traditionally you'll start up with a sketch like a, you know, a drawing <laughs> and we'll, you'll move into uh, either wireframes or depending on your skill set, you just jump right into high fidelity comps. And then depending on your, your skill set as well, you might go into uh, prototyping. Uh, my favorite prototyping tool personally is uh, principal simple because of its artboard nature. But after that, uh, you would essentially make a spec and then you deliver that to engineering. With VR, that completely, it kind of changes the game a little bit. But in a way, it kind of returns me back to my my roots of designing in Flash, where you know, I'd start off with low fidelity sketches, just get the idea of what I'm trying to convey. And then I'll make low fidelity sketches in Sketch. I'll just make like gray boxes, put the world, um, like a background behind it. And I'll come back to that in a second. And then prototyping or building that UI in a tool called Unity. Unity is a very powerful game engine. And it's fascinating how hard it is to go from Sketch to Unity. Not because they're different apps, but simply because when you're designing in Sketch, you're designing a flat interface. And usually with our interfaces, there's like a background. It's not just like a solid white background. There's usually something there, especially in VR. And But the problem is, is that, you know, that's not really how the user experiences that environment. And that's not how they experience that UI. The UI um, is not just flat in front of their face in VR. It's actually curved. Usually it's curved around them. So it's just something that's really interesting to see how less time I spend in Sketch now simply because I need to spend more time in Unity imagining how that UI is going to feel when it's on their, like in front of their face. Um, like you don't want to create UI that's too big uh, because it feels overwhelming. You're just looking at like, it's like standing a foot away from like a, a movie theater. Nobody likes sitting in that front row for a reason. <laughs> so it's yeah. you know, how far back do you put people? And uh, all of those things have to come into consideration when designing those things. Now, virtual reality is growing in popularity. There's a lot of different VR headsets and systems out there. Daydream, of course. Oculus. There's others I can't think of right off the top of my head. Uh, but I know that there are, there are several that are out there. So virtual reality is kind of growing in popularity. But I don't think it, it still hasn't hit that 
that kind of mainstream adoption yet. Mm-hmm. What do you think it'll take to get there? Definitely was grappling that grappling with that before I uh, uh, joined uh, Daydream. But I, I think even for myself, I wasn't using VR as much as I do now at home. I think that's the reason why I like Daydream in particular is because it's not attached to a PC. I don't have to lug around a computer with me when I'm using that things. Mm-hmm. But there is kind of the the cultural challenges of when I put on a headset, I'm not really paying attention to the world that, that really exists. So it's, uh, it's going to be a challenge for a while. Many know like the first thought that comes to somebody's mind is like, okay, what if you make the headset more invisible? What if they're just glasses? It's like, well, that's, there, there's a problem with that too. Well, Google would know that. Right, you? right. <laughs> <laughs> Leave that topic for another time. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, there, it's interesting how uh, it's just the, the the consciousness of it's like I'm wearing a headset and other people see I'm wearing a headset. The, there's social factors that come with that. But, you know, when they're in there, people really enjoy it and they really have a lot of fun. You know, there's obviously um, experiences that. Uh, people react differently to different experiences that can get motion sick or something, but the people generally have a good time, but it's just the, it's like, okay, I'm going into VR now. I'm ready to do this. I'm <laughs> I'm going to spend the next 20 minutes doing this. It's a mode that you go in. Now the, the VR experiences that I've seen, you know, they are these, you know, like you said, they're these immersive environments that kind of take you out of reality and kind of put you into another world. One thing that I, I really have not seen and, I feel like this could be an ideal use. Maybe this could be the thing that could take VR mainstream communication purposes. Mm. So like talking with, with relatives far away or even, you know, not so far away, but like, so for example, I'm in Atlanta, I'm in Georgia. My mother and my grandmother are just a state over in Alabama. And, you know, I go home every now and then, but not all the time because mm. they live in like the sticks where technology is, you know, a nice idea, but not a necessity of life like it is in metropolitan areas. Right. And, you know, I talk to my grandmother every now and then. And she's always like, oh, you should call more. I want to see you. And <laughs> thinking, what if, like, we both had these VR headsets or whatever, <laughs> and she could put hers on and I could put mine on. And then it's the direct one-to-one connection because she's seeing me, I'm seeing her, mm-hmm. we're talking somewhat, you know, I guess in, in real time. Mm-hmm. It does take you out of the rest of the world but then that's that's kind of what you want mm-hmm. to spend time with family you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's definitely a sense of like if you let's say for example uh, you're both in like a space together and you're both sitting on a chair and you're just talking to uh, one another i think it's fascinating to solve the communication problem not only for the sake of keeping up with family but also even for professional services like you know medicine business politics even so yeah. I, I think there's definitely a possibility. The challenge with person-to-person communication via VR is the person, the representation of the person itself. And I can go super deep on that. There's so many things that I've learned. But I think the um, the challenge oh, is, yeah. you know, the challenge is the uh, the um, you're wearing the headset, so the person that the other person sees might not be a full representation of you. So avatar or right, exactly. It's, a rep- it's like an avatar representation. So um, how are you getting those uh, those inputs from people? So what we saw from like the Facebook example, the Oculus uh, demo that they did a few months back, there was a cartoon avatar. They didn't have lower bodies uh, from what I could tell. 
And their arms were kind of positioned like 90 degrees or so because they were holding these Oculus touch controllers. So it's like a pretty good representation of a person that's pretty abstract, but it's cartoony, right? And it's cartoony because you can get away with faking uh, certain things, like uh, the swaying of the shoulders or the swaying of the hips. When you start getting into the facial expressions, that becomes difficult because if you're having a serious conversation and we're having to talk about medical supplies being delivered on time and I keep giggling and smiling. My avatar keeps giggling and smiling. What does that mean? Right. So there's there's certain challenges that come with representing people in virtual reality because human beings are just so complicated in their own that it's hard to always translate perfectly the emotions of a person. Um, you know, we have video conferences now which are way more accessible, but um, that becomes challenging as well because, you know, the you have a headset, so you don't get a full picture of your face. So there's definitely, I guess the note there is just, it, it's definitely a challenge that needs to be solved, uh, which is the communication factor. But um, yeah. Well, you know, if there's any place that could solve it, it's Google. Mm-hmm. You know, get a bunch of engineers in a room. Mm-hmm. You guys watch like some Futurama episodes. Yeah. <laughs> just make it happen. Right. I, I, could, I, could, I mean, part of what you're saying with that is, you know, it sort of boils down to what's, humans would accept as the representation of self in a virtual space. Mm-hmm. And so is it, you know, real high fidelity or is an avatar okay? Is it something like Second Life or is it, you know, something more like Google Hangouts or it's right. a video chat? So it's all about kind of it feels to me like it's about, you know, not only what that representation is, but how you put that representation forth to people mm-hmm. in order for them to accept it. I mean Right. You look at chat rooms and things like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in the 90s and even the 2000s, people are like, you're just chatting with people <laughs> in a room and you can't see them. Right. And you don't know what they look like. You could be talking to anybody. But like it's such, right. but chatting and SMS and WhatsApp and all this stuff is such an integral part of communications now because we've yeah. just grown to accept it through right. society. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, all the Mr. Robot stuff aside, I know people mm-hmm. probably <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully they haven't. Hopefully they haven't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> One thing that you, you mentioned when we talked earlier, we talked, you know, before we, we recorded, is that you were telling me that you were very anti-conference. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think this, it was kind of a developed sense that I've gotten. It's just uh, a lot of the conferences that I've gone to, I've just, and I don't want to name any of them in particular, but a lot of the ones I go to, they're just not diverse. I would just be sitting there for, you know, usually a day or two days, depending on how long the conference is, and just not hear from not only people that didn't look like me, but women as well. It was always a homogenous group of men that just constantly were up on the stage. And that's fine. If, like if you're getting like your buddies together, and you're putting together a conference, it's fine. But the lack of representation becomes bothersome. And based off of what I know about the value of diverse voices, is that's just not the maximum amount of uh, potential of uh, knowledge that I could be getting. Uh, my favorite conference is uh, was uh, XOXO. I mean, they <laughs> it's the non-annual annual conference. Mm -hmm. where they were having it every year, but they stopped last year. But that one was the only conference that I um, personally knew. I know there's others where they went out of their way to get uh, diverse voices on stage. And that's where I heard a lot of stories from women on stage that opened up my perspective on the treatment of women in tech. 
And it's because I was going to these conferences that they weren't talking about it. They were only talking about the technical details or the fun, happy hours that they had or how to create company culture. It's almost invisible to a lot of people that they don't know to look. Thankfully for me, growing up black in, in the Midwest, I knew there's something there, but it was really hard to find uh, conferences where they actually had those discussions. So I've just been anti-conference for a while simply because um, I, I'm less interested in hearing about the same story over and over. I want to hear something that will wake me up to, to something that I never heard before. Yeah, we had a guest on a few episodes back, Natalie Nixon, well, mm, Dr. Mm. Natalie Nixon. She's in Philadelphia. And one of the things that she she mentioned in that episode that I thought really kind of stuck with me was mm. saying that we need diversity in design. And I guess, mm-hmm. you know, ostensibly that could also extend to tech and other fields mm-hmm. as well. But particularly, she said that we need diversity in design because the more diverse the inputs the more innovative the outputs. Mm-hmm. So it kind of, you know, falls in line with what you're saying. You want to hear from people and and hear things that will kind of make you think and make you walk away with something that maybe you didn't have before. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it definitely something that I could take with me. There's conferences that are a little bit more technical. There's the social conferences where it's more about culture. The technical conferences I see it can be very useful to people, so I do encourage them to go to those. But just I just always throw out a flag when I see just pure culture conferences where they don't talk about culture from different perspectives. And it's so important not only for people like me to hear culture and perspective talks from people that look like them, but also for our other uh, white friends to hear perspectives from these other people that are now brave enough to get on the stage and now talk about it. And that's so important because this is a chance for you to hear and also to take back that knowledge and see how you can solve potential problems at your own place. Yes, yeah, so I, I think it's incredibly important to, to have a diverse lineup, especially the topic is about creating a culture amongst your team, and that gets into inclusion. So when do we get to hear you speak about this? I mean, <laughs> kind of, I mean, it's one thing, you know, to kind of be anti-conference from the right. attendance level, which I right. totally get. Yeah. But what about you being that person on the stage that is mm. that? I mean, yeah. not, you know, when I say diversity, I don't necessarily mean that just from a demographic standpoint, mm. but, you know, the experience that you've had, not just with the work that you've done at Google, but prior mm-hmm. to that as well, which we'll, we'll get into. Mm-hmm. People wouldn't want to hear that. People would want to hear that story. You think? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I'd hope to think that people would uh, find use in the things that I experienced. You know, I definitely, I did not come through the traditional design path. You know, I didn't go to design school. I was in school for computer science and then I quit early because I wasn't interested anymore. And I was in, I was living in Iowa City at the time and I was scared. I was scared at the time. I, I had no idea what I would end up doing. And one job led to another and I ended up being at Google. I would have never imagined that. Um, and I would hope that, you know, in a conference, I could have that opportunity to tell that story. And, you know, one, there's actually one that might be coming up. Uh, can't really talk about it yet, but the, that might be an opportunity to, take the things that I've learned and package it up in a way that could be uh, didactic for people. Okay. Let's go back to the University of Iowa. Mm. You said you, you studied computer science. Yeah. And, you know, looking through your – I looked at your, your LinkedIn profile. I looked at your website. And you have – you speak about 
your time there very fondly, but yet <laughs> you said you you dropped out because you got, I guess, just tired of the the education. Like what what happened there? Yeah, uh, I was so I actually went to uh, school and I enrolled in computer science because I thought I was going to get into game design. I wanted to get into game design. That was my passion back in. 2000, I graduated 2000, graduated high school 2000. And when I was going to school, I was, I was taking these classes. I just, I was just turned off by the, just programming in general. You know, I, I enjoyed programming in certain languages. I had fun in ActionScript, but at the time they were teaching COBOL and, you know, uh, hmm. writing assembly and like writing like C, uh, C++. And I was just like, <laughs> like, this is not what I imagined <laughs> what I'd be doing. I honestly, at the time, there was no plan to become a designer. I, that wasn't even on my uh, my mindset, but I was definitely focused on making a game. And yeah. on the side, I was making uh, my own story. I was trying to write my own RPG, and it was oh yeah, it was it was a really fun kind of personal project. I made the characters. I drew the characters. I made them. I made the world. Um, a friend of mine at the job that I worked at in college let me use his uh, computer to design the characters using Photoshop and Illustrator. So that was my first introduction to Photoshop and Illustrator. And it was interesting where I, uh, I was like, oh, I actually I have this little world. What if I made a little website for them? So I made a website and it was it was oh, I don't remember that. Name maybe it was, it was. I don't think it was nine line, but it was. It was definitely a website, and, and that's when another person noticed, and they asked me if I could make one for them. So I was doing all this. I was doing all this like side passion projects on the side while I was going to school, and uh, that's when I got an internship locally in Iowa City, and then another job opportunity popped up in Des Moines to design websites at uh, what was called Iowa Network Services, and that's when I was like, okay, I, I'm no longer interested in computer science, so I left. It was definitely kind of like a design was revealed to me through non-traditional means. And I realized I was pretty good at it because the side project. So definitely the moral of the story is not to drop out. <laughs> but it was one of those things where I saw an alternative passion and I just doubled down on it. Well, college is the time you're supposed to find yourself. So it yeah. sounds like that at least that much happened. Right? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it was definitely scary at the time. I wish there was a playbook. You know, that's somebody told me that, you know, that you could end up leaving college and not knowing what you're really doing. Because uh, it was scary. You know, I, I told my brother at the time I was considering uh, leaving school. And, you know, I, I was scared to tell him because it's like that's not something that anyone is particularly uh, proud of doing. Uh, at least for me personally. So it was just, it was really hard. But uh, thankfully I had the just the right things popped up at the right times and people took chances on me and I'm grateful for that. When I graduated high school, I had no idea what I was going to be doing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know really what I was going to major in. I had right. a bunch of schools I was interested in and I really just went to the one that gave me the most money. Yeah, yeah. Morehouse here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And when I got to Morehouse, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do computer science, computer engineering. One, because I wanted to be like Dwayne Wayne from a different world. And two, because I had been working with computers in terms of like, you know, learning HTML and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, yeah, I could, you know, be someone that makes websites. Mm-hmm. And I started out that first semester and it was it was similar to what you're saying. We're learning like C++ and this stuff is just not <laughs> like, like I'm sort of getting it, but it's like this is what I have to do for a living. Yeah. Like this is, this is terrible. And I remember going <laughs> to my advisor and telling him that I wanted to design websites, you yeah. know, 
And he was like, oh, you know, the web, that's just a fad. Like, yeah. like that's going to just die out. Like, nobody's, it's like nobody's designing websites. If, if that's what you want to do, then you probably need to change your major. Yeah. That's how I changed my major. Nice. I switched over to math and, you know, the rest was history after that. But right. I know what you mean about kind of having that, that non-traditional path because mm-hmm. I was always doing design stuff on the side. Right. And eventually, it you know, once I got my first design job in 2005, it, uh-huh. it became the, the crux where my hobby then became my profession, which mm-hmm. then ended up becoming my career. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. It's, it's interesting because it's when people ask the question of, you know, how did you get into design? I'm sometimes apprehensive because I don't want to always leave that behind. It's like the way to get in. There are some really solid ways to get into design, you know, going to a design school, even though they're really expensive or going to, uh, you know, a traditional liberal arts school and just enrolling in the design program there. But it, it really is something that I think there's um a lot of research to be done to figure out how design programs can be improved at some of these schools that don't really put a lot of effort into them to encourage people that are kind of on the down and out in college to really seek an alternative path. Because design is, I see it as a, um, an evolving industry that's more than just mobile and app design. Uh, I see it as something that's going to, I see it as something that needs to evolve to solve real problems or to evolve uh, to solve social problems. You know, when I think about design, I don't think about politics. When I think about design, I don't think about uh, food shortage or water shortage or climate. You know, So is it, can that change? So I think uh, right now when I think about design, I think about mobile apps and uh, games and cars and houses. So <laughs> uh, I hope that uh, there's a lot of really good perspectives on this uh, topic where um, you know designers uh, are starting to find their footing uh, and align themselves with the, the business uh, to find more business-oriented roles where you're bringing the design discipline to those roles without having to actually design. So that's something that that's starting to happen. Yeah, a lot of that is, is happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of that is through the efforts of of AIGA, right. some of that is through, you know, a lot of individual efforts. Mm-hmm. Partly what you said about how design is is not necessarily seen as part of other, mm-hmm. like other, I don't know, other parts of the mm-hmm. world or other things that we experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I tell people that everything that we use passes through some level of design, mm-hmm. and it's been that way kind of since birth. We know the the clothes we wear, mm-hmm. the cars we drive, mm-hmm. you know, everything has some sort of designed experience mm-hmm. in some way, right. and so. Because we have that much interaction with it, we know kind of innately when something is, is poorly designed. Mm-hmm. We know when something could be better designed. Right. We don't necessarily, I mean, it's, it's almost an innate sense in a way because of our exposure to it over time. Mm-hmm. There was a conference in 2015 mm-hmm. called the Black Design Conference. Mm-hmm. This, this took place in Harvard, at Harvard, the Harvard Graduate School of Design. And it was an interesting conference because all of the the speakers were designers but they were they were designers i want to say in different ways like they would there would be a designer who put together programs to mm-hmm. teach their local neighborhood about better eating habits or a designer that talks about the work that he does restoring old african american historic landmarks right. or a designer that talks about how she uses history or how she used history and geometry to redesign like a public square in Brazil or something like that. And it was such an interesting application of seeing how people took their creativity 
and just applied it in ways that weren't on a computer screen. Right, right, you know? right. They're going to have the conference, I think, again this mm, year. I'll have to look into I'm, that. I'm like, I am on them. Like, let me know how I can help. Because I went to it in 2015, yeah. and it was, you know, I tell people it's the first event that I've been to that I feel like affirmed me as both a designer and a black person. Right. Interesting. Like there was, you know, they did have, you know, these cultural elements, specific cultural elements. They had like a soul yoga in the morning. Mm-hmm. They had a like a soul food chef, mm-hmm. Bryant Terry, that did like catered meals and stuff there. And they had these little kind of interstitials between some of the, the panels that would be maybe a choir singing or a dance mm-hmm. performance. And it was a little odd. Well, I mean, odd because when you go to a design conference, you don't really expect to see right, it. Right. But it still was something where it, it kind of encouraged people in the audience to talk among themselves. And I mean, it was packed. Mm-hmm. It was standing room only. Interesting. So I, uh, they're going to have it again this year. I am staying on them to get information because I'm like, as soon as there's something, let me know yeah. how Revision Path can help out. I will be there again. It was cheap. <laughs> I hate to kind of put that right, part right. out there, but we know that sometimes these events can be pretty cost prohibitive. Right. But it was the most expensive ticket was $50. Oh, that's good. That's good. And I was like, yeah. let me just yeah. – I just took a, a plate up from, from Atlanta. I was like, $50. I got yep, that. I got yep, that in my yep, wallet. Let's do it. Go. Let's make it happen. Yeah. So – but I know what you mean. It's it's that exposure to to kind of, you know, how design can be used in these different spaces. And it really kind of had it was the kind of event that I walked away from feeling like I could take what I know and put it towards so many other sorts of things. And even now, I mean, you know, I think even just what's happened recently in terms of, uh, you know, the outcome of the presidential election yeah. last year has galvanized a lot of designers into seeing how they can use yeah their skills towards civic engagement, mm-hmm. which is great. Mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of hate that it took something like that, mm-hmm. but it's working. Yeah. So yeah. people are seeing ways that they can, you know, kind of transform their communities and their neighborhoods mm-hmm. by, yeah. you know, even if it is building tools or maybe it's getting active or maybe it's designing flyers, but it's something. Yeah, yeah you know? exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I definitely, I'm also starting to see that uh, happen as well. And I think that is one the, the only silver lining that I'm starting to see is I've never seen this many people talk about uh, race. Even the, the conversation that we've always had about, you know, we need to have a, a real conversation about race in this country. It's like, well, this is it. This is this is as good as it gets. <laughs> this, is, this is it. It's not going to get any. It's not going to get any more peaceful. It's not going to get any more uh, darker. This is it. And I think the once we start seeing people transition or make that uh, that pivot on the things that they work on, you know, I personally uh, I joined uh, a daydream in um, early November, or at least I made the decision in late October to say, okay, I want to join this team. And then November eighth happened. And, you know, there is a part of me that is, okay, what, what am I doing to really improve things? There's also a, a part of me that says, you know, black people have been through a lot, <laughs> you know, find the things that you're passionate in and like really go after those things. Learn the skills that you need yeah. to uh, and the things that you're passionate about. But remember that you have a unique perspective on uh, things. You're going to go through things unconsciously even that not many people will. And I think it's valuable to uh, share those stories. And I hope that the platforms that we continue working on uh, in the industry from social platforms and civic, uh, civil engagement platforms, uh, the more voices are coming out. I've personally started shifting the voices that I've started listening to. I've changed most of my following on Twitter to be more trans voices uh, from the transgender community to hear what they're saying to what they're going through. And that's just Twitter. And it's changed everything. 
Um, I'm also pivoting a lot of the voices that I'm listening to to black women because I haven't worked with a lot of black women in my in my time. I want to make sure that I, when I talk about diversity, I'm not just talking about diversity for black men. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I, even if I'm talking about product design, that I'm not just creating user profiles and user scenarios for upper middle class men. It completely changes the product that you work on when you change the uh, the parameters of who you're designing for. Are you finding that, I guess, Google as a company, do you think they're sort of moving towards that? I know, and the reason I'm bringing that up is there's always, you know, talk about diversity in mm-hmm. Silicon Valley with different companies mm-hmm. and Google, along with other, you know, large companies of its size, kind of tends to be in the spotlight mm-hmm. when it relates to not just, well, this is what the diversity of our workforce is, but also the initiatives and the programs mm-hmm. and things that they support or that they put right. out. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I think I've always felt uh, appreciative of what they do internally. You know, there, there's kind of like an official thread that Google has in terms of how they uh, like to talk about diversity and, um, and whatnot. But I think the personally, though, I have. I've been grateful of the uh, not only the public announcements that they make, but also the internal ones, you know, to be able to uh, come to work every day and see a collection of people from uh, different cultures is one, a reward in itself. And then two, when something does happen uh, in the world, um, uh, there's usually a collection of video calls where people get to share their stories internally and you can hop in on those calls and listen to them. And it's just nice to see that uh, everybody at this company has access to those kinds of things should they want to pursue them. As you go through your work, what is it that keeps you motivated and inspired to continue? Mm, my kids, I have twin uh, boys. They definitely influenced me to get into VR simply because of the gaming aspect. But yeah, to keep me going is it, really to... There's kind of a spite in me where I was like, you know what? A black man can't succeed in this industry. <laughs> so it's like there's a little bit of that. But the but the really? yeah, it's like I, I've never I haven't seen that until recently. I haven't seen a lot of uh, black men in design. But there's kind of like a small part of me that's like, you know what? Like, I feels pretty good to be considered a successful designer. I was going to mm. say, like, even at, at your level, you feel. Yeah, I, I feel is. uh but the most important thing, though, is like my, my family, being able to uh, go home and see their faces and be able to take care of them is the most important thing. And just be proud of what I work on. Um, I like being able to tell people that I work on this stuff. It's a personal pride for me. But there is like a lately, though, because of uh, seeing like more data come out about how few voices there are uh, in the industry. It is kind of nice to know that I'm part of a growing number of people in this industry. Yeah. Are you familiar with the group Bay Area Black Designers? Bay Area Black Designers? No. Sounds familiar, but... Okay, so you should check it out. The woman that runs it, her name is uh, Kat Veos. She's been on the show before, I think episode like 133 or something like that. She puts on a monthly meetup. I think if you just go to Mm. meetup, search for Bay Area Black Designers, it's I think about 100 plus strong in terms of membership. That's awesome. Check it out. Tell her you're Yeah, yeah. This <laughs> so makes me... Definitely check it out. Cause, yeah. Because I mean, there's people from, you know, all throughout the Bay that are, are part of that group. And eventually, if I if I make it out there, I want to be able to try to go to a meeting just so I can say yeah. that, that I've been. But she's doing some phenomenal work. So if you're looking for yeah. more, 
I think that's a good place. Yeah, to go. definitely down to check this out. Yeah, I'm gonna look that up. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. I've been going to some meetups uh, where it's like a maybe a handful of uh, individuals, but uh, definitely looking for something with a lot more volume. Yeah, definitely check out check that out. And I mean, you're in the Bay. I don't know if AIGA San Francisco mm-hmm. is doing some stuff around diversity, mm-hmm. but I do know the the diversity chair. His name is Julio Martinez. He's doing some some great stuff. And actually, I don't know what his actual title is on AIG. I think it's something with education. But uh, his name is Steve Jones, and he teaches at San Francisco State University, mm. who has also been on mm. the show. I want to say like episode 11 mm. or 12 or something like that. Seek them out, okay. too. I mean, I don't know what, what other stuff AIG San Francisco yeah. does locally, but I do know the, the diversity chair there. Nice. So. He would be probably a good resource. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it definitely last year was kind of a, a massive uptick in meeting other uh, uh, black designers, um, particularly, uh, you know, Dantley uh, Davis from uh, Facebook and uh, Steve Johnson from Netflix. And, you know, it, it's really nice to start to hear about these uh, organizations that are popping up. So I can feel it. It's growing exponentially. It makes me good. It makes me feel good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to look at the Bay Area Black Designers because I definitely want to uh, uh, meet up with more folk. Yeah, check yeah. it out. Just, Did you always kind of want to want to move out west? I know you said you, you grew up in Iowa. Well, you went to the University of Iowa, but you, you grew up there as well. Yeah, I grew up in Iowa, in Iowa City, Cedar Rapids. No, there wasn't a, an ultimate goal to move out to the west coast. I was uh, When I was working in Des Moines, the web director from Oakley emailed me asking if I was interested in moving to Southern California. And it was hard to turn that down. <laughs> so it was a, uh, mm-hmm. it was a kind of a, a dream come true at that time. And I think the, uh, that's what opened up the door to the new opportunities. Yeah. But uh, no, there wasn't a grand plan uh, to move to California. Was creativity like a big part of your childhood? Yeah, definitely was. I spent a lot of time drawing, spent a lot of time, just playing with my uh, twin brother, just like, you know, drawing around pictures. We used to draw pictures of uh, Battletoads, which I hope people still remember. Uh, I remember Battletoads. I'm that old. I remember. No, <laughs> yeah, Pimple. And I don't remember their names now, but yeah, Pimple is the only one I remember. Oh, it was, uh, it was uh, Rash, yes. Zit, and something. All the... I, I, there were three of them, but I, I remember Rash and, and Zits or something like that. I love that, that yeah. they're all named after facial that's good <laughs> but yeah there uh there was a pimple in there they had a friend named pimple. Uh, that's right that's right yeah, yeah but it was, ra- it was rash zits and was it just the two i, I, I feel like there's three I thought, was three I thought there was three yeah i feel like <laughs> i remember rash and zits maybe pimple was the other one i don't know anyway yeah oh you know what i'm looking it up now it is it's rash zits and nice that's right. good that's good <laughs> Oh man, I love that they did that. But yeah, we used to draw pictures of them, and, and so yeah, we would we would always draw stuff. It's actually interesting that you asked that question because that's like probably the extent of the creativity that I had growing up, and then going into college, you know, making my own story. But I do find that fascinating, though. Is one thing I, I started to notice when I moved out to California, and I was working at these on uh, these you know very talented teams, very talented people. They were sharing a lot of the same stories about their childhoods you know they grew up with like a computer in the household where their their uh, mom or their dad were either engineers or they were designers or architects or something and they would you know either like fiddle with a computer uh, or they'd have their own 
Uh, they would play games on it. They'd sometimes take it apart, but they would, you know, they would watch the Star Wars, Star Treks, the Jetsons, and all these very high technical things that I was definitely not doing as a kid. And it's interesting how a lot of that stuff is starting to influence a lot of the technology that's coming out today. And that's, and that's why I'm very optimistic about what's happening and where the design culture is leading, where we're focused on accessibility for a lot of people. Because it really is a 20-year plan, in my opinion, to distribute a lot of these experiences to people that wouldn't otherwise see them. So that in 20 years or so, maybe the lineup is actually more diverse because of it. I hope that the, the simple act of um, having phones that are more accessible, like our Androids and whatnot, being able to play games with them, be able to like, you know, the little Kano computer kits, you know, stuff like that. I'm glad that those are yeah. coming out because more kids are getting access to them, especially ones in underprivileged communities. And mm -hmm. I hope that it has the same effect that I'm seeing right now. I hope. Yeah, like the the Raspberry Pi yeah. and the little yeah. Arduino kits. I would have killed to have that kind of right, stuff right. as a yeah, kid. Yeah. I remember I had... What did I have? I mean, I grew up with, with sort of science. Mm. Well, I grew up with different sciencey mm. stuff. My mom's a biologist. Mm. So we grew up with like hard science yeah. stuff. Like I knew how to like dissect animals. Mm -hmm. like, <laughs> Man, that's <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, I also had, had an older brother. I have an older brother. He's four years older. And we would sort of <laughs> share toys. So he would have like this big, like 144 and one electronic kit which was like one of these like box mm. it was like a shallow box with all these transistors and circuits and you could hook different things up to it and like make a clock right. or make a fm radio or something like mm -hmm. that and he had this like technical set called capsella huh. it was like the precursor to connect interesting or lego mindstorms but like all of the connectors were like these spheres that had these hexagonal connectors and you could put floaties on them and make a boat with a mm -hmm. motor and, and like all this different kind of mm -hmm. stuff. And, and recently I have started going back and this is so dirty. <laughs> I recently have started going back and purchasing the old computers I had as a kid mm -hmm. just to have yeah. them. Cause to me, it, it like reminds me of what kind of made me want to get into all of this right. stuff in the first right. place. Right. Like I had a, like a talking whiz kit thing that had these cards that you slide into <laughs> it. I had a, a Laser 50 VTech computer. I mean, it's it's like trash by today's standards, <laughs> but it's, it's about the size of, I don't know, maybe like a standard keyboard, but it had a little display on it, and like that's where I learned how to, to program in basic because mm. you could do little like basic programs. Yeah. And then I, from there, I moved up to like a VTech pre-computer 1000 mm -hmm. where I used that to learn how to mm -hmm. type. And I learned basic on yeah. that and I learned how to make music on that because it had a sound program mm. where you could you could program out the different tones and octaves. And then it was from there that I like took up music in school yeah. and stuff like that. But like I started I've started just recently going back and, and getting these little like because now you can get them on eBay for like 40 bucks or something. And yeah. it's like it's I just look at it. It's like this is what made me want to do what I do now. Like at the times when I feel like, oh, I don't feel like doing it anymore. Like I'll look at it. Like, oh, you know, I remember when it was fun, when it was something where you you learned out of, I don't want to say out of necessity, because these were very limited tools. They were toys, essentially. But when you look at what, you know, kids have now and the, the plethora of apps and devices and games, I mean, 
technology's come a long yeah. way. Really long it really way. Is. It really is. Yeah, and I have no idea what the uh, what twenty years from now looks like. You know, the uh, the kids that are experiencing those things now are they going to be motivated enough to make the things that they experience when they're kids better? Because they're already pretty good, you know. But I I wonder where the industry is going to be in uh, 15, 20 years or so, and what the level of emulation is going to be like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like the is I think our generation is fascinating because we experienced everything from analog to what we have now. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's just we really you know, we really you know going to like the days of Atari all the way up until uh, virtual reality. I think it's fascinating that we have insights into both of those cultures. So I think that's pretty cool. And I, I mean and you know, like I said, for me, like when I get these computers, it's also important to realize and I guess to still have that sense of wonder mm-hmm. about the work that we're doing, even though the technology has gotten so big and so grand, mm-hmm. like still having that sense of wonder and amazement and whimsy and fun really about the work. I mean, this is not something that everybody has the chance or the opportunity to do to make the kind of stuff that you're making to do the kind of things that you're doing, mm-hmm. you know. It's a real privilege. It really is. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's uh, definitely uh, aware of that. and like to uh, make sure that I don't lose uh, sight of that because there's a lot of people that would uh, want to be in the shoes that I'm currently in. Uh, definitely aware of that. But yeah, I think uh, it was, you know, it, it's something as simple as, you know, a representation. Like when I saw the trailer for uh, Star Wars and John Boyega, you know, was there. And I actually I was tearing up at the in the trailer because, you know, I I did grow up watching Star Wars, mm-hmm. but to see you know in a um, a modern trailer and a very classic film showing a John Boyega and then Daisy uh, her name is Daisy right Daisy. yeah showing them starring together in that film I was just like man this is awesome so yeah I, I just got like really emotional because I just think about like the kids that are gonna see that now you know like. The same people that I talked to now is like, oh yeah, choice. When Star Wars came out, it was so awesome. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but like you know, fifteen years, what's going to be that uh, the awesome thing to talk about? You know? So, yeah, I wish I had the computer growing up. I wonder how different my path would have been <laughs> if I had uh, more uh, devices growing up. Well, I mean, I mean, even when I think about it, like for myself, because you know, for a while I did want to do programming. Like I don't. I mean, I did, I guess if you could call it design, Mm -hmm. I mean, we created USA rocket Mm -hmm. ships in basic. So like we had like this really super, I mean, it was basic, the programming Mm -hmm. language, but you could make little graphics and stuff. I mean, I kind of taught myself HTML. Mm -hmm. And so that's why by the time I got to college, I was really interested Mm -hmm. in it. And my, you know, the school I was at, they were just like, we don't, we don't have that. Mm -hmm. And I switched to math and I was still kind of, you know, doing stuff on the side, taught myself photoshop and a bunch of other you know kind of apps and you know it's to the point now where again took that hobby Mm -hmm. turned it into a career Mm -hmm. but even now if somebody wants to come up like people will ask me you know what should i learn and and you know what school should i go to i was like i don't Mm -hmm. know Mm -hmm. (laughs) i reverse engineered stuff i because i was from a small town and the nearest bookstore was 50 miles away so there was no just going to pick up a book on computer programming because one, it was the 80s, mm-hmm. so it didn't really exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and two, by the time we did get there, it's like, is this something that people are still using? Because like, I could get the book, but that doesn't necessarily mean I've got access to the device right. to learn how to really kind of use this right. stuff. Library had one book on basic. It was this great book. And I mean, I checked that thing out 
every two weeks for about five years. Mm. Just like as soon as I was checking it, I would check it right back right. out so I could keep But that's all right. I had. That's all I had. Now, I mean, you've got Treehouse and all number of, you know, General Assembly and all this kind of stuff. So people ask me that. And I'm like, I have no idea. I was so taught. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much out there. I can understand people having that paralysis of not knowing where to begin. But there was something that you mentioned before that I think is really important. For you, you really got into learning, you know, design and learning how to code from a passion mm-hmm. project. You were interested in your in your RPG that you wanted mm-hmm. to create. And from there, that's when you created or that's when you started learning these tools and learning these yeah these different yeah. things. And so that is what I tell mm-hmm. people, like find a project or something that you want to yeah. build. And yeah. that's how you right. learn because it's something that you've got the drive right. to do. And you're not just right. like right. copying stuff out. Of right. Books. Exactly. I, I think you're totally right. I think that's, uh, and that actually is what happened recently. I, I sometimes forget about this is um, the reason I know how to use unity was because I wanted to create, you know, like those, um, those topography maps that show terrain layers, right? Yeah. So I wanted to make one of those for the map that I made 10 years ago. And I was going to make it on paper where I created, like, I'd cut out different pieces of paper and I'll lay them on top of each other with spacers. But it was really hard to do. It's like, oh, I could just make this in like a 3D program. And what's the best 3D program right now? It's like, oh, it just happens to be uh, Unity. Oh, Unity's pretty good. This is pretty fun. It's like, oh, there's actually bunch of VR designers that are using Unity right now. It's like, actually, VR would be pretty fun to do. So it's actually, it's interesting <laughs> how the, the thread happens. And yeah, it's, I think the passion projects are the best way to find um, uh, what you do, what you want to do. There's a couple of friends of mine that are finding their passion in writing. And I think that's really awesome. I think there's uh, definitely a lot. You can jump more hoops, I think, when you are definitely more passionate about the, the space that you're in. I can never be a, a financial analyst. <laughs> it just struggles. Like, I need some sort of game mechanic here because I, I just can't do this. I need yeah. something. But yeah, I think being able to tie it back to something helps me remember. Um, plus, you know, when I show the little experiences to my kids, I can, uh, they like to, they love games. So I'll like, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll uh, build something in Unity like real quick and I'll just like let them walk around in the world. I mean, it's not even a game. It's just like an environment. It's like, did you make this? <laughs> so, so that is a joy in itself. Do you still want to make that RPG one day? I do. I'm, I'm conflicted on whether or not I want to make it a game versus a um, graphic novel or something. Um, yeah, but I definitely... Um, uh, appreciate the fact that I get to uh, use Unity on a daily basis now, so I can uh, probably accelerate its development because of that. But yeah, it's definitely something I want to do before I, I pass. <laughs> well, if, if there's any industry that definitely needs more diversity, it's mm-hmm. gaming. Mm-hmm. I mean, not just game design, but also the, the end products. Right. I feel like last year, I think was the first year it may have been it may not have been the first year but it's the first year i can remember where there were two triple a games that came mm-hmm. out that both had a black protagonist right. that being mafia 3 and and watch dogs right, 2 right. for people right. that are, are wondering but i was like i don't recall that ever happening mm-hmm. like maybe one maybe, maybe. Definitely not. Like a too. customizable character, maybe. <laughs> may, may, uh, you know, maybe a customizable character, but even, yeah, like if I'm playing, you know, Skyrim yeah. or something like that. But I mean, yeah. by design, yeah. the main character is a person of color. And yeah. you're like, that's, 
And when I say a person of color, not blue, not like yeah, yeah. It's a black person or a Hispanic person or an Asian person. No, I'm right, serious. Right. Like it's it's the first right. time that I really recalled right. that. It reminds me of this interview I did with Olivier Mariba, mm-hmm. who is a, a game designer in Cameroon. Mm-hmm. And he had an idea. He was when we did the interview, he had an idea for a video game that he started, I want to say back in like 2000. Hmm. And like he kept building the idea and iterating on it. He eventually built the country's first gaming company Hmm. called Kiro Games. And in 2014, 14 or 15, I have to go back and look, but they finally released the game to the public. Hmm. You can buy it on Steam. It's called Arion Legacy of the Cory Odon. It's like an action RPG game. Hmm. It features all these elements of, I don't want to say African elements, because Africa is a big continent with a lot of countries and a lot of cultures, but it features these cultural elements that really, I think, could only be pulled off if the person that's programming it is from Africa or from a country in Africa. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I think that would be, yeah, I definitely want to look that up. That's, uh, yeah, I would love to play more games that actually feature not only uh, lead uh, black characters, but also are actually about black or african culture that would be awesome what did you say what's called it's called orion a-u-r-i-o-n legacy of the cory odon oh. i'll put a i'll put a link to it for people that are listening i'll put a link to it in the show notes yeah, yeah if you just, i think if you just look up orion mm-hmm. you'll find yeah. or or you could go to revisionpath.com mm-hmm. and search for it and you'll find the interview, and I think I've got a link to it yeah. there in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome. That's because I can't think of a single. I mean, there's only maybe two games I can think of off the top of my head that are based in uh, Africa, which is like one that crazy Resident Evil game. Which I was gonna say, don't say Resident yeah, Evil. Yeah, I, like, <laughs> I was just about to yeah, say that. Yeah, I was like, oh man, it's like the fact that we're thinking about the same one is not good. <laughs> and then maybe maybe the uh the new metal gear but that was like yeah no uh, so I, it's bad yeah. it's it's not like this i i just looked up an image of it and that looks gorgeous this is like my kind of game so i'm downloading this in the moment that i get home nice. but yeah that that looks awesome it's just awesome to like whenever i'm playing like a game like the division i make a you know a black character and i will note that the division the character creation one of the characters actually is uncanny to me it looks really? exactly like it's almost scary. Like my wife was walking past the the TV and she was like, uh, "What?" <laughs> it is not making full <laughs> customization either. They, they it just happens to look like. But I just wow. think it's fascinating that like how much more fun it is to play when you can uh, relate to the character in some ways. Um, you know, Mass Effect I think did a, a pretty good job, even though that was like custom character. I think they did a good job though, making sure that. They weren't just releasing trailers for the male character. Uh, they released trailers for the female version of Shep as well. I thought that was really cool how they did that. So I, I think there is a huge value in uh, Diverse Cast. Fast and the Furious has seen the benefit of that. Yeah. You know, the record number of sales every year uh, from different uh, cultures um, because they feature people from different cultures. So it's, it's a actual financially beneficial to make your cast more diverse. No, we're definitely, you know, even seeing that with uh, with Hidden Figures, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is, I think, the first Best Picture nominee that is like, I don't know, like super high grossing. It's like over 130 million Mm -hmm. gross Mm -hmm. for the movie so far. 
That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I, I think that's, uh, you start to pull in, you start to reach a, a bigger audience and you start to motivate them to want to uh, extend the stories. The fact that we could only think of one game uh, that was based in Africa, uh, most of them this Arion game, is problematic. Yeah. I think there is a, a good thing to happen about uh, uh, making sure that not only are the stories about different cultures, but they're not the same representation of that culture. For example, a lot of the movies, when I think about movies about Africa, a lot of people think about war-torn Africa. And that's not good because, you know, there's it is not a, a war-conflicted uh, continent. It is a pretty large as the land with a lot of different cultures. I mean, I think that a lot of the stories aren't being told, but the only ones that we keep seeing are... The ones where, you know, there's uh, child soldiers and exports of like drugs and stuff. So it's, it's just the, it's like the only message that's coming out about Africa, or at least in the mainstream. I think that's sad. So I'm I'm really hopeful to see more African diaspora or just like more African content. I mean, even Disney is doing a better job than most with them. Um, I, I saw The Lion King in the musical and I was blown away i cried at the beginning because it was the most amazing display of like a colorful african culture with black and black men and women actors on stage performing and i was just like man this is beautiful i think it's like stuff like that i would love to see more stuff like that i would love to immerse myself in even learn, spend uh, more time learning about african culture that i don't know about because uh, i'm sure there's a lot that i don't know i know there's a lot that i don't know um, yeah are you familiar with Nollywood? Uh, Nigerian Hollywood? <laughs> yeah, my, so I, I, my, if you couldn't tell by my name, it's uh, Nigerian. Yeah, my parents, they, uh, they're obviously both Nigerian. They uh, they spent a lot of time watching Nigerian movies. They have a large collection, I hope. Well, one of them that they might be seeing, uh, One Dollar. <laughs> it, it, one Dollar is the name of a film. It is the most... Ridiculous thing I've ever seen. It was amazing. <laughs> but yeah, Nollywood is awesome. It's the most, uh, uh, it's like one of the biggest movie industries, like other than what, Bollywood and Hollywood, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's funny. I saw that on a Vice trailer, like Hollywood is third. Yeah. I think either Nollywood or Bollywood is the, mm. but Hollywood is like far behind. That. That's awesome. That's awesome. And that makes me happy. And I'm glad that there's like a, a film industry there. My parents love those. I wish they were like, I wish there was like a Netflix just for that. <laughs> just for yeah. I'm You know what? I feel like there probably, probably is, is. Or there, I mean, hell, there might be Nigerian movies on, on Netflix. No, actually, that's a good question. Could yeah, be. yeah, that's a good question. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah, they usually just get them from like uh, like little uh, DVDs and whatnot. But um, you know, there's there's something sweet about the the production value. Um, but I think the because I I love explosions in movies and whatnot. But but I think the uh, the it's nice to see that there's an entire industry there uh, coming out for that. So it's only going to get better, which is good. Where do you see yourself in the next like five years or so? What do you think? Be- mm. Oh man, you know I I would have had a different answer for you in October. <laughs> I would hope that I'm working on something to improve. I guess I'll put it like a top three things that I hope I'm doing. So one, I hope I'm working in a civil engagement uh, to actually uh, help improve uh, the reach of technology to marginalized communities. I hope I'm working on something in that regard. I'm starting to gain a lot of respect and admiration for city planning 
even though working in government doesn't sound very enticing, I think it's really awesome to think about like transportation design or just general like city layouts and residential residential planning. I think that stuff is interesting. Uh, so not one of those non-traditional design roles. And then three, working on something in the music industry. I don't know why, but I think there's something fun about like, I don't know much about music production at all. That should be uh, more accurate. I know zero about music production. Okay. <laughs> so I, I think it would be kind of fascinating to like pivot to that. So those are my top three, which is civics, city planning, and uh, music. But I definitely see myself still focused on design. That's my strongest deliverable right now. I don't know if that's going to change, but I think uh, that's where I see myself the strongest. Well, just to wrap things mm-hmm. up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Mm. Right now, I mean, my portfolio, Nine Line Design, it's just a quick snapshot of me. I started to spend more time on Twitter. My uh, Twitter handle is just check. Occasionally, I'll talk about design. I'll link to good resources for people. The I am uh, considering uh, creating a, a blog. Uh, I'll keep you posted on that if I do. Uh, but right now, just okay. uh, follow me on social or, um, or check out my website, connect me through there. I'm definitely interested in... Uh, helping uh, mentor people or uh, guide people in the direction that they're hoping. So I'm always okay with uh, one-to-one communications. Just reach out to me on social for that kind of stuff. But um, Sounds mm-hmm. good. Well, Chikisi Ijiasi, mm-hmm. man, thank you so yeah. much for coming on the show, for sharing your, I mean, your story, you know, telling us about what you're doing with, with the work at, uh, at Google and everything, mm-hmm. you know, I, I still, you know, kind of keep, you know, in my mind, I'm going back to what you're saying about, you know, being anti-conference, not to bring it up in a bad mm-hmm. way, but to kind of, you know, also just sort of put forth the impression of, you know, you can't be what you don't see, yeah. like for the, the generation right. of designers that are coming up, mm-hmm. that, you know, the work that you're doing is is important. It's work that should be seen. And I think even just you being where you are right now and the path that you've taken to get there mm-hmm. is something that I think a lot of people could find inspiration in. They could certainly, I think, get lessons from mm-hmm. that. So I don't, I mean, don't be shy about, about sharing that. I don't, I don't think you should, right. not yeah. that you are shy, right, right. but I mean, I can understand how going to these kinds of events, mm-hmm. you can start to think like, well, you know, this is just, it's a sausage. Mm-hmm. I don't see what I really contribute to any of this, mm-hmm. but your unique path to get where you are now, the interest that you have, I think are something that a lot of people would want to hear from. So thank yeah. you so much for coming on the show. I well, thank it. you for having me. It's been an honor. Yeah. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Chikizi Ijiasi and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Chikizi and his work through the links in the show notes at provisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as showing how internal design critiques work at Facebook, sharing resources about VR and other cutting-edge tech, and by giving away great tools and resources like Origami Studio, popular device templates for Photoshop and Sketch, and even diverse hands for mock-ups. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 15 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to grow their businesses and make money in their sleep. 
Speaking of which, I've talked before about setting up Facebook ads, you know, in MailChimp. But if you use MailChimp for e-commerce, like if you have a, a store or anything like that, you can now add order notifications for shipping, for refunds, orders, and cancellations. So all of that ties right into your MailChimp account. It's really cool. Sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain. With free private domain registration, like I mentioned earlier, and your choice of domains across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there, how can you turn that down? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Since 2004, SiteGround has been empowering web professionals and beginners alike to build better, faster, safer websites easily without having to worry about web hosting. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path and get 60% off on all hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, please do me a huge favor. Subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps the show by bumping us up in the iTunes rankings for design podcast. And I'll read your review right here on the show, just like I did with JAA0829. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Visit us at yepitslunch.com for all your design, strategy, and creative consulting needs. And if you like the work we're doing here with Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. Now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.